In Dogen's <clears throat> instructions to the cook when he tells the story of the old Chinese cook who straightened him out, um, <clears throat> pointing to how precious everything is, how everything is to be respected, um, <clears throat> and then went into great detail, particularly about the role of the cook. Um, <clears throat> but please understand that that was in what we call the Soto sect of Zen. Uh, it's uh, silent illumination, it was called in China, in English. And they sit a lot. They really sit. So the reason I mention that is there was such a strong emphasis on an activity. And then if you read other writings of Dogen, he'll talk about, uh, I've mentioned all this, this is more of a review. Um, He'll talk about the administrators at a monastery, the same glowing terms. So that finally, and then if you go to tea ceremony, archery, and so forth, as I, I hope has been made clear, each one of those special activities uh, it can be given special attention. Uh, the cook gives such an emphasis to cooking because Dogen thought that the whole practice was just sitting. And so he straightened him out. Okay, so now we're about to leave here and go back home. And I'm going to get into a few uh, simple hints. Some of you, you, most of you know it all because you've, uh, you're know-it-alls. <laughs> uh, you've been here before. One of the things I've discovered in uh, the years of teaching this way, both in Cambridge here and elsewhere, in attempting to convey the importance of daily life and practice as being one thing. That is, if, we, if our attitude changes and if we begin to see that the, prior to all the forms is simply life and the challenge is how to live, how is one to live. It's not just Asians who are concerned about that. That was a big question for Socrates. How is one to live? And that keeps changing. Isn't that a challenge for all of us? Sometimes it's moment to moment, how am I to, how am I to live? Okay. So uh, this emphasis um, is trying to say it can all be of one piece. There's, pro there's life. And then how can we make that uh, real rather than just a nice theory? Uh, because we're up against something. Uh, most of us, perhaps all of us, come to sitting meditation practice, IMS and places like this, because of suffering, because life has been difficult in some way. If you were just totally content and happy and uh, complete peace of mind, why would you go looking for something like this? I don't think so. So then once we find it, then uh, and especially if you start to see how valuable it is to set aside some time, a kind of um, a shelter. This is a sheltered life in one sense. And that's why sometimes people will talk about when it's time to go home, we're going back into the real world, which I think is a big mistake. Because what we're trying to say, what we've been trying to say all week, is there's only one world. This is just as real as your job, your family, uh, school, whatever it is that's next for you driving, getting on a bus, car, plane, and so forth. 
wherever you, wherever you go, there you are, again. It keeps being like that. So what I've discovered over the years is that uh, because I value contemplative life tremendously, I love to sit. I know I've been emphasizing something else a lot, but I really love to sit and for many, many years, and I do sit. And so why do I keep mouthing off about uh, all this other stuff? Because what I've seen is it can become a non-hospitalizable form of schizophrenia. Where, where what happens is, especially if you fall in love with, with sitting and with the breath or whatever your me chosen method is, you can get very calm. You can bring peace and joy. For those of you who are having a hard time with that and haven't fully tasted it enough, you will. It's lawful. It's something not reserved for special people. Okay. So once that happens, or you get great contentment from tea ceremony or from archery or from whatever it is, there's a tendency to then fixate on that and set it up over and above the merely 99% of life. So what I saw in the early days when we were all going on retreats, and I did lots of long retreats, and I saw what was happening here and in Asia and elsewhere for lay people like ourselves, is that, let's say the three-month retreat, people would come home from the three-month retreat, and they saw how precious and valuable it can be. It can be misused, but it is precious and valuable. And then um, the remaining nine months will be used to earn enough money to get back for the next three-month retreat. In the meantime, a lot of the conversation was about how great the three-month retreat was and how much you're looking forward to go to the next one. And as you went to one, two, three, then they were worn like combat ribbons, you know, sort of uh, all the different battles that uh, and uh, medals that soldiers get. Three-month retreat of 78, you know, and so forth. <laughs> okay. um, and what you see happening is, you, you already understand. So what I've seen is that when I emphasize the importance of daily life, it's very, very often used to undermine sitting. I've seen in Cambridge, let's say, which I know very, very well. So Cambridge has been set up uh, in, it's a spin-off of this place, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. It's an urban center. There are a number of them now. For, I think it's good that they're starting to spring up in different places. And the motivation uh, for starting it was seeing this pattern that as people would come off, come out of protected um, special environments like this, here, Asia, wherever, and then come back into a world and uh, there was no place for them to continue the practice, but we intentionally didn't make Cambridge a residential place. There are only, uh, the, the most we ever had were two or three people. Well, I lived on the top floor for 13 years, but I don't count. It's my job. Okay? I have a yogi job that never ends. <laughs> so at least you can get out of here. <laughs> okay. Um, the reason we don't, it isn't residential, uh, residential is that what we wanted to do is people would come. We, re we really respect and encourage people to come to IMS, let's say, or other places like it. And we have retreats at CIMC. And then, uh, okay, now go back home. Go to your family. Go to school. Go to work. 
and test it in the fire of living, and then come back here, and then go out, and then come back here, so that you begin to see there's really just one thing. But what I discovered was, when I would emphasize daily life, then, uh, oh, my practice is my three-year-old child. I have a live-in Zen master, a three-year-old child. You're right. <laughs> it sounds good. Uh, but then, when was the last time that you sat? Let's see. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember it was so long ago. Oh, right, because you have a live-in Zen master. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. And just all of the, you know, daily life is my practice. It can become the biggest cliche. And, it's, and so, so then I would swing over to sitting. Go to IMS. Do retreats. Go here. Go there. There's a good monastery over there. Come here. There are good teachers over there. Then people would shift over and start neglecting daily life. So then I'd run back over to daily life. And then, they, then they, uh, that undercuts sitting. So then I'd run back to sitting. And then they go into daily life. So I gave up. So at least the attempt is, to, for, uh, so I saw at a certain point, the view is very important. If we don't understand, at first it begins, it's conceptual, of course. The idea that there's just life and that if we neglect 99% of what it makes up life for us, whatever your life is composed of, and we have this tiny chunk which we love and do and respect and appreciate and bow to and all the rest of it. And then we run back to that dirty, noisy world where some people believe in war and eat meat and you know, all the rest of it. And then we come scurrying back here for, or places like this. I don't think that's the best way to live. Uh, the world we live in really, that, this, is, this is it. It's exactly this way. All, everything that is going on, this is our time. This happens to be the way the planet is. You have your particular piece of it. So do I. We all do. And uh, if the practice isn't about learning how to live, and if wisdom isn't something alive, then I, I don't understand what all the fuss is about. It's, it's not just coming to a special place and getting a fix in, out, in, out, in, out. Oh, great. Um, you can do that much more quickly with other ways, you know. I'm not suggesting. <laughs> okay. Okay. So be, be aware of, of uh, the mind's tendency to, it's brilliant and it's shameless, to say, oh, he, they said daily life is really great. Oh, I, I don't feel like sitting. Nah, I don't feel like sitting today. But, oh, here's my three-year-old child. You're my Zen master. Great. Okay. Uh, now, within that, there are differences. Some people, we have differences of temperament. So those have to be honored. It's not one size doesn't fit all. Some people quite naturally, quite naturally are drawn and will do much more sitting. More uh, sitting at places like this or at home. Other people, perhaps more extroverted, will uh, do less sitting, uh, more uh, bringing attention into daily life, and so forth. The more you sit doesn't mean you get wiser. So that's an illusion, in my opinion. It's what you do. Uh, is people sometimes ask questions on this retreat. There have been questions which have to do it's as if it's, it's some uh, meter. You know, uh, How long do I have to sit before I get to be whatever you think is great? Uh, it, time is a factor, of course. but. It's not a matter of time, it's a matter of understanding. 
It's how you use your time. It's, uh, is the mind learning? Uh, if you read the Buddha's teachings, the, uh, the early Buddha's teachings, and it keeps getting developed as it moves through all the different countries in Asia, and now it's here, there are a couple of themes that jump out, two in particular, at least to me. One is that everything is changing. And it's changing in an uncertain way. It's unpredictable. I think we all know that by now. Uh, it just keeps rolling on. And that law just keeps being that, being that way. And the other thing that comes up again and again is how to live skillfully. The difference between skillful and unskillful. I think Matthew mentioned last night the Buddha's teaching to his son, Rahula. Uh, well, what is skillful and what is unskillful? Skillful in a nutshell, are states of mind, ways of verbalizing, and ways of acting that produce suffering. Uh, that's unskillful. That produce suffering for ourselves and for others. Skillful, same thing, only that are beneficial for ourselves and others. And so uh, it isn't anything mechanical or automatic. The qualities of attention and sensitivity that we develop in meditation practice, let's say formal meditation practice, which is emphasized here, now we bring it back into our life, and learning is essential. Wisdom is not something fixed. It's alive. And it's learned from moment to moment. We make mistakes. We will do foolish things. We will hurt people. The difference between people is some people learn and some don't. Now, I, we all assume, we're all here, that we all care about the quality of our life. Why else would you be here? And so uh, wisdom is something that let's put it this way, clear seeing is a prerequisite for wisdom, paying attention. If you don't pay attention, how can you learn any skill or art? How can you learn to cook if you don't pay attention to, you experiment, you put different ingredients in, uh, you taste them, you give them to your friends to taste, and you see too much salt, too much paprika, too much of this, not enough of that. You modify it until you get it right. And living is a lot like that too. So. Crucial is your willingness to learn from what you see and hear, both internally and externally. It's not simply a matter of how just sort of having, I'm mindful, like with a miner's lamp, you know, I'm mindful all the time wherever I go. Uh, because what are you learning from, from the seeing? Uh, the heart of vipassana is, is understanding. Now, the understanding to begin with may be conceptual, it is. But then more and more, it's not. The, the, the insights that are essential, that transform us, have no thinking in it. It, it's the, it comes from, and usually at a certain point, is the clear seeing. Things become so obvious when, you, when the mind is a little clearer. And so bring that attitude back to life. Now, if you do, then uh, emphasize the journey rather than the goals. Some of us, we have this stepladder approach, you know, it's sort of, we can't help it, we got it, you know, it starts with school, different grades, and, and then, you know, it's sort of junior high school, high school, and then maybe we go to college, and then MA, and so forth, on and on. Uh, we get, the, we're a junior executive, then we get a bigger account, then we're a CEO, and then we're, uh, if you're a professor, full professor, then you're emeritus, then there's a statue of you in the yard, and, you know. <laughs> uh, um, if you want to do that model, it is more intelligible to us. That is, we're always doing things to get something else. And that's, that's understandable. But the model being suggested is uh, the practice and the attainment are the same thing. 
That is, uh, in Dogen's terms, practice and realization are the identical, identical act. That is, when you fully are in the present moment, not only are you practicing, but uh, what is this big fuss about the present moment, after all? Is that the present moment ha has um, immense significance and it's inexhaustible. Uh, think of it this way, as more and more we learn how to be with what is, just the way it is right now, uh, we, that takes us deeper and deeper and deeper. And so in putting in it, let's say, I prefer the term awakening to enlightenment because it seems to be closer to what the Buddha is a fully awakened person. And each one of us can taste awakening. You've already tasted it here. Maybe it's a few seconds here and there. That is uh, connected to the same awakening that the Buddha had. Maybe it's 10 seconds where you're really with the breathing. You're awake and there's no grabbing, there's no pushing away, and you feel more alive and there's a certain peace, and then it's gone. And little by little, we're learning how to, that the only, it isn't that the only way you can get it is after you assume a certain posture and go to a certain special place and that it has to come with the breath or with metta or some other, uh, you start to see that you can develop this ability to pay attention anywhere, in any posture, in any situation, but you have to take that on as a practice. And definitely find time to sit. Get a, a daily sitting practice. It's very important. And it will vary for each person. Sometimes in life, a lot of things are going on. You can't sit quite as much. That's fine. That doesn't mean that you can't practice. When people come in for interviews here, especially in Cambridge, I say, how's your practice going? Well, I didn't get to sit too much this month. I said, no, how's your practice? I didn't ask how your sitting practice is. Sitting is one form of meditation. What we're attempting to convey here is a meditative way of living so that as pressure, the sitting posture and formal uh, places that protect that and enhance it and give us this wonderful opportunity to develop this ability are special. IMS, we're here. And then again, they're not. But then again, they are. But they aren't. <laughs> but they really are. It's not either or. It's while you're here, certain qualities can be developed. Now, uh, now we're going back to the real world. Was this always a piece of cake being here? Based on a lot of you, what you guys were saying in the groups, I don't think so. So life goes on. We get frustrated. You suffered here. Different kind of suffering. It's just that correct action here is to maintain silence more. And you know the culture, the rules, and so forth. When we leave here, we drop that. But let's, let's get back to the sitting, because there's always a, a question. How long should I sit? And I personally don't know the answer to that. It's very easy. I, I wish I could say it with conviction. Um, 40 minutes in the morning, 40 minutes in the evening, and then I'd be done with it, as if there's some magic to that. But I don't think it's true. For one person, 40 minutes is an eternity, and it becomes grim and joyless. And before you know it, uh, they're in, under, you know, in email. Okay. <laughs> Uh, for another person, 40 minutes, they're just getting warmed up. So find here you're dependent on us. We, 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 so you fit into our, you know, this somewhat arbitrary timetable. 
and it's useful because you have, sometimes you feel like sitting, sometimes you don't, sometimes you wish the bell would ring, sometimes you wish it wouldn't ring, sometimes you're just so happy when we say, say stuff, other times, why doesn't he shut up? <laughs> I was having such a nice silent sitting, and here he goes on, just relax, be with her. You know. <laughs> you know, I was relaxed until you opened your mouth. <laughs> So um, find out what that is. So there's creativity, uh, and there's ingenuity, and there's play. Uh, you can have fun with meditation. It isn't just give me the rule. It's not assembling a vacuum cleaner. But uh, the yogic manual, you open it up, page 22, how to sit, you know, how long to sit, how to put your feet, how to go here. OK, maybe that's all right for toddlers. I'm not even sure it is good for toddlers. But finally, uh, don't check your intelligence and your sensitivity uh, when you come to this. Use it. And if 25 minutes is, feels right for you, then do 25. Challenge yourself a wee bit. Because that's how you grow. You take on things that are, there's a little bit of, of challenge. Don't overdo it because it, it can become overwhelming and then you get discouraged. And then the 25 minutes may become 30, naturally, at your own pace. Sometimes our life is such that we have to fit sitting into the way our life is organized. I think more and more, if you really come to value this, which includes sitting, in other words, do you get it? I really value doing the sitting practice in IMS. And it isn't all of life. Someone sitting in this posture, like my boss up here, the Buddha, that's great. But you never see him vacuuming. You don't see him making love. You don't see him taking out the garbage. So it's no wonder you know, we come to think that this is it. This stands for the whole thing. OK, I think uh, I'm trying my best. It's just one life, each form, whatever you're in it, surrender to it, enter into it. What's correct action here? If you're driving a car, drive. And you'll soon figure out what's correct action when the policeman pulls you over. <laughs> OK, uh, and so forth. And sometimes it's puzzling. What is correct action here? Uh, so then you understand, I don't know. Fine, then start there. Start with I don't know. Um, a few words on relationship and then uh, this present moment stuff. And then um, I'd like to hear what, if you, if you have any, any uh, questions. Um, now that we're leaving here, actually, relationship was alive and well even here, wasn't it? Even though officially there are no relationships, come on. We notice each other. We like certain people. We don't like other people. Uh, uh, we form, you know, the Vipassana romance, then the Vipassana vendetta, and the Vipassana, you know. <laughs> you know, they interfered with my, they took up my path. I always walk here, and now they my sandals have been here for the last three days. Now someone else's sandals are there. <laughs> OK, so the same human emotions come up. Uh, the Dharma attitude is a bad situation is a good situation. Or put more generally, every situation is an opportunity to learn from. Life is the teacher. It's constantly teaching. If we're willing to learn, open up, see what's going on. Uh, so let's take relationship. 
Relationship is the hardest one. I mean now personal relationship. Because now we leave here where not only is talking permitted, it's often you have to talk, whether you want to or not. <laughs> and you want to run back here. Well, thank God, here you don't have to talk. Then when you're here, you want to talk. And you go, oh, you have a point. It keeps going like that. Okay. So, but relationship is the most difficult for us humans, the whole human race. Just look at history. I, do I, I don't think I have to spell it out. We're so brilliant in every way. Fantastic science and technology and business and art. And, uh, and wisdom, it's sad. It hasn't grown at all. It's puny. So that now we have a very dangerous situation. We have brilliant technology and science, which has created the power of destruction that's beyond belief, and it keeps going. Now, everyone was, was uh, in, if you read ancient history, they, there was war then too, but they had swords and bow and arrows. How much damage could they do? Now, we can destroy each other. We can wipe out the planet, etc. The problem isn't the bomb, etc. It's the mind, finally. Because that comes, came out of the human mind. It isn't Wall Street. It isn't the oil spill. Those are symptoms of greed. Those are symptoms of not paying attention. Those are symptoms of avoidance, of aversion, of not learning, not valuing learning how to live, but just thinking that happiness comes from accumulation. Okay, now I don't, I'm not going to make this into some political uh, diatribe because bring it back to each one of us. It's the same principle. Start with ourselves. You want a peaceful world? Are you at peace? If you're not, that's fine. It's not a criminal offense. Just begin there. See, how do you actually live? The, the, what is is a fact. That's what, it, what is, we keep using that phrase, it's to encourage us to come back to the fact of this moment. Thinking turns what is into what isn't. And we seem to prefer to be in what isn't. We think our way into what isn't. Oh, I'd much rather be in what isn't. But what isn't, isn't. <laughs> Get back to what is. But I like what isn't. It's much better. It's not real. It's not true. <laughs> OK, so how can this relationship, let's say granted that what I'm saying is plausible to you, and let's say interpersonal relationship, isn't that difficult for all of us? Uh, even if you have good relationships, a good marriage, this, you know, loving children, etc., whatever your life is like, uh, there's always something. You're in a relationship, you want to get out of it. You're out of a relationship, you want to get in it. You know, uh, there's no end to it. As Churchill put it, what's your philosophy of history? He said, oh, just one damn thing after another. <laughs> okay. It says a lot. Okay, so here's the, the Dharma way of looking at relationship. Relationship is a mirror. That is, when you come in the presence of another person, typically it, it stimulates something in us. We have a reaction. We can't help it. It might be a wonderful one. Oh, good to see you. Something goes on in here. In the body, you can feel it. The breath changes, etc. Our mood changes. It can be, and, and anything can happen. Now, the skill is not to, let's say, something, a button is pushed. And I think that image is not a bad one. You press Coca-Cola, that's what you get. You don't get uh, organic lemonade if you press Coca-Cola. So we have buttons, and people push them. And then we don't spend time understanding our role in this because we're so fixated on the button pusher. OK? 
Okay, here we're learning how to be with people, but more and more without losing touch with our inner life. It can be learned. Granted, it's not so easy. But you can learn it. And the only way I know to learn is to start. Jump in. When you're talking to someone, real listening requires that you listen to yourself as well. Now, mainly your energy might be to the other person if they're speaking to you, but you haven't lost touch with your, your reactivity. And that sometimes you're more inside and a little bit less outside. And it's like the flow of the oceans going in and out, the tide, back and forth. And if you do that, more and more you realize life is of one piece. And if you're going to live it, uh, it helps to understand that what's happening inside of us is vital. It's very important because it's affecting how we behave, how we speak, how we treat people, how we treat ourselves, everything. And so relationship is a mirror in that uh, people you love, people you hate, people you're indifferent to, they're teaching us about ourselves. And let me give you an example, come in a little bit closer, the example I used of my parents. I want to make this as practical as I can for all of us. When I saw that being with my father produced in me something that uh, it was a sort of like a film between us that I hadn't known before. Uh, the, when, the diagnostic category, my father, the Alzheimer's patient. Okay. And, but in order for me to get free of that so I could see more clearly, and then the behavior changes, because how you are is how you behave. I had to see that something was going on in me when I was in his presence that was new to me, and I didn't like it. I knew I loved him, that wasn't the question, but somehow there was something. And as I looked inside, I could see that the diagnostic category, just it, it isn't the word, it's just reading about it over and over again, it affected my perception. And once I saw that, I had an image of him, and the image of him a conclusion. Once that fell away, he was just who he was in a given moment, and it changed everything. I was able to... Be, to behave in a very, very different way, in a much more um, skillful way, wiser, kinder. With my mother, if you were, those of you who were here, uh, holding her hand and me giving her this beautiful Dharma talk, you're 90 years old, this body has served you well, uh, stop struggling, let it go. You know, she's belabored breathing, we're all gathered around her. What, what happened to come in a little closer is that I saw inside because I kept giving her this, I think I stole it from Ajahn Chah, in one of his books, you know, uh, just your body has served you well, it's time to let it go, and so forth. And it was, I thought, a very appropriate, perfect Dharma talk. Uh, but what I saw was that it wasn't about my mother so much, it was about all of us. We were incredibly uncomfortable with her breathing. And I just wanted her to stop, stop struggling, because I didn't, it didn't make me feel good your mother's dying. I know, but I want to feel good anyway. <laughs> and so once I saw that, um, that uh, I saw that it wasn't just about my mother, of course, to some degree it was, but it was about all of us who were there. We were like this. It was painful to hear the quality of breath that was going on. And when I saw the reaction to that, that fell away, and I was able to see my mother clearly, and she didn't want to hear that she that, that her body has served her well for 90 years. That's not what she wanted. She wanted to hear that she was a loving, good person and that she was appreciated. 
So now those are dramatic cases, I understand, but it's going on all day long. So that uh, relationship, which is the most difficult for us, in speaking in general, uh, a bad situation can be a good situation. It's an opportunity to take a fresh look at how you live and take a fresh look at how you live with people. We spend so much energy on the other, just blaming them for our problems. Look, there are some people who are troublemakers. I'm not denying that. They're very difficult. Uh, <clears throat> what we call the euphemism is at the different centers, um, a high-maintenance yogi. <laughs> In other words, a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, but if we can see that the impact it's having on us, and if that falls away, then it's possible to have a response. A response is not mechanical, because it comes from a clearer, quieter, it's not, a reaction is mechanical. It just happens. It's out of our, it's mechanistic. It's, out of, it's from our conditioning, our history. We, we have a stylized way of responding to certain situations, reacting to certain situations. If that gets even a little bit weaker, a response, as I'm using the language, is possible. The response can be fresh. It can be different. You might even say the same words, but the energy is different because it's not, a, it's not automatic. It's, it comes out of a softer place, a clearer place, silence, when it, when it starts becoming more and more part of your life. So I gave you dramatic examples, but in order to see that relationship is a very creative field of liberation. Because, for example, in the Buddhist teaching, uh, I think most every Buddhist teacher I've ever had agrees on this. Finally, the source of our suffering is attachment to me and mine. This self-cherishing, this preoccupation with ourselves. Okay. I have found that nothing flushes that out better than relationship. Just terrific. That's why we don't love, that's why it's trouble. Now, and I found out the hard way by coming off long retreats, feeling immaculate, you know, just an inch away from sainthood. <laughs> and then you go into Whole Foods in Cambridge and someone's ahead of you online and just as you think they're about to pay, oh, I think I'll pay by check, is that okay? And for some reason, you just want to get out of there. And you can feel it. And he goes, well, I guess sainthood's gonna to have to wait a while. <laughs> so even strangers uh, can teach us. Being on a train, anywhere. Uh, so in other words, it's, it's being open to life in all its forms. It's not just even people. Leaves, birds, everything. It's being sensitive and open and this sounds kind of contrived and uh, like I'm making it into an academic subject. Uh, it's more, it's joyful, it's fun to learn how to live. If you take it on, if you want to be perfect and keep striving to get to be perfect and punish yourself and others because you're not perfect, uh, it's a very, very tiresome trip. It's exhausting. It's, it's hard. So what I'm suggesting is it is the, you've heard this all. It's the journey. Enjoy the journey. And the journey is always now. The Four Noble Truths, some learning is helpful. Illiteracy is not necessarily a, as an asset. You might hear, well, this is beyond thinking. I don't have to read, know anything. Uh, I have found that illiteracy is not necessarily... By the way, you can be illiterate, but understand the essence. There's a teaching here that apparently we need. 
because without it, we've been behaving the same old way, which is not productive. So there have been wise human beings, not just in Buddhism, who've presented us with guidelines for living, and there's a reason why the human race has taken it up, because we need it. It's just that often, after the inception of it, we don't do it. It becomes ossified and dead. And then we forget. We go to church on Sunday, and we're all dressed up, and we're nice, or synagogue, or wherever. And, then, and that's a special place. And then we leave it, and then we go back to chicanery and conniving and, and all the rest of it. So how to make life of one piece. Um, Relationship flushes out this sense of self-importance. And it's amazing what can do it anything. You didn't take out the garbage today. You said you would. Well, yes, I did, but, and you can feel it. The body changes. You can just feel, in other words, the ego is on its guard so often. It doesn't take much to get it to be defending, defending itself. From what? Apparently, it doesn't feel secure. If it was so stable and strong, it wouldn't be protecting itself so much. It doesn't feel that way. It's not assured. It's not confident. You might strut around, maybe you're confident in your work or this or that, but then there's a certain level that uh, we, we're incomplete. Otherwise, why would we need to do this stuff? Okay, now let's go back to the present moment again. Oh, I forgot. I got to talk about love. <laughs> And I got a cowboy wisdom. All right. Fortunately, okay. Fortunately, Matthew did a lot of the heavy lifting last night with you. Okay. And cowboy wisdom, I can do that one now. Okay. As the mind becomes quieter, it becomes more sensitive. So let's say wisdom is learning lessons. It's not just memorizing a wise thought and then like parrots can do that. I want to be free. I want to be free. <laughs> you know. Okay, and then you open up the cage and you say, go ahead. I want to be free. I want to be free. It doesn't fly out. Okay, so wisdom has to be translated into action. It, it lives and breathes. Okay. Uh, okay, so let's say we read in a, in a, in a book, uh, attachment leads to suffering. Holding on in a changing world. Wisdom is learning how to live skillfully in a changing world. The world is flowing. It's not a static thing. And we tend to get fixated. And it doesn't work. Okay. So um, as the mind gets quieter and more sensitive, those moments when we do attach and find ourselves suffering are potentially at least moments of learning. Because... Uh, something in it touches us. And if, we're, if the learner is present and, and values learning from life, you can see, oh, this doesn't work. And the learning can go deeper and deeper until it's bone deep. Robert Duval, Open Plains, something like All the cowboy movies sound the same. The titles sound the same. Open, who knows the title of it? Open range, that's it. I don't know, someone, I can't remember it, and I don't have to be accurate with a film, do I? And Matthew has to with Dhammapada and all that, but I don't have, okay. 
someone is asking, well, you know, have you ever been, I think, been married? And all he says, oh, yeah, I've been, you know, I, I know the suffering of, of all that. He says, oh, so you have, apparently his wife died or his children, wife and children, something happened, they, they died. And he says, Do you, so, you know, so you know what's suffering? He says, oh, yeah, I know it. It's bone deep. Okay, so the, the more we, the, as the lesson gets learned deeper and deeper, the wisdom becomes more potent, more effective. Because to begin with, it's pretty superficial. It's just conceptual. And there are a lot of brilliant people walking around spouting brilliant ideas. It all makes sense. It's great. And that helps a little bit. But it's just the surface, it's just water bug activity flitting around. It has to go deeper and deeper until you are the wisdom, you are dharma. It's not just quoting dharma. Okay, so bone deep, where's Mark? Okay, am I off the hook? Okay. Love, I'm just gonna, and, this, I'm, and there's no, no rebuttal, well it can be because it's gonna be Q&A after, all right. <laughs> okay. Um, this path, the Buddha, a lot of what the Buddha is teaching, there are cultivating, you cultivate certain qualities like metta, which is loving kindness, friendliness, and so forth. And that's obvious going in that direction. But the wisdom, wisdom is sometimes called the way of negation. And the way of negation means you cut away that which is not wise. For example, let's say you want to be nonviolent. Well, you can put up a picture of Gandhi over your bed, you know, and you can read the life of Gandhi and Robert, you know, and uh, all kinds of uh, wonderful people who have been strong and courageous in the service of nonviolence. Uh, and it's inspiring, and tears stream down your cheeks, and you go out and you punch someone out. You know, uh, I learned this. Uh, my time in the military taught me that big time. I saw that I had an ideal of myself which wasn't accurate. Okay, so th the way of negation is rather than trying to do an impersonation of being a nonviolent person, it's not that you should, you begin to get to know the aggression in you. Because if you don't take care of that, what you're doing is superimposing ideals on top of urges that have not been uprooted or taken care of. So the real love comes out of seeing all the ways in which we impede love. So that finally, um, I would say, people talk about enlightenment, awakening, and so forth. One way which I feel comfortable because it's an ordinary word is silence. In one, one school, uh, enlightenment or awakening is called the great silence. I like that one. But then if you hear with silence, what is that, just a break from life? There are no words. How could there be words that do it justice? It's silent. Words are not allowed in. No words allowed. Stay out. Silence is very shy. You can't make it happen. You can't will yourself into it. If you love it, it opens up to you. And when you taste it, if you can surrender to it, it will do the, I've, I've found the most important healing happens in the silence. So don't underestimate that. Our culture has put an emphasis, uh, what is really valuable is talking, doing activities. And they are, and thinking and so forth. Things we can produce, build, carry, Obviously, that's part of life. So silence is just sort of a break from where the, where the real stuff is. But this inner silence, look, the center is outer silence. You drive, and then we have a rule, please keep silent. But the real, this is all to help us get to the inner silence. So these are sort of mean, means 
to, in, to helping us come to what awaits us. Everyone has it. No one's been shortchanged. Okay. Now, when you open up to that silence and it starts to become more of a normal thing and you go deeper and allow it to do what it knows, it's a highly charged form of a subtle form of life. The Tibetans call it the cognizing power of life. It sounds very cold and you know, it won't satisfy you, Philip. Okay. But as much, okay, now sometimes it's the awakening of a kind of intelligence. Real wisdom is the silence. But I would say, finally, meditation is an explosion of love. It's so, if it, do you think we're doing this so that we would not be loving people? What's the point? We already aren't. <laughs> or it's mixed up. Now, the love that I'm referring to is not sentimental love. It's not the, ba- you know, I love you, honey, and if you only, you know, if you only knew, and then if you come home, and I, you know. Uh, that, <laughs> that comes and goes. Oh, you looked at someone else, out, out the door. So that's something else. It's nice, but it comes and goes. So that's a mind state. The silence I'm talking about is a force in the universe. I would say my observation is that motherly love comes close to it, or maybe it's it. But the point is when you taste this love, it's as real as death. It's a real energy. It's a force. And then the challenge becomes how to direct it appropriately. You direct it differently to different people. Otherwise, you're in big trouble. If you start going around hugging everyone, uh, they'll put you in another building, not like this. <laughs> so, but, so that, of course, it's love. But we don't talk about it enough. You're right. And I'm not going to, so there. <laughs> I'm so tired of New Age, oh, I love you, you know, just so that I feel healthy. You know, <laughs> you know. Did you ever go to an... Old age. What? Old age. Oh, old age? Okay, old age, true. Okay, but go to airports, so, you know, I go to cafes. Here's everyone on their cell phone. Love you. And then you can picture on the other. Love you. You know, <laughs> love you. Love you. How you doing? Fine. How you doing? Fine. Love you. Fine. Love you. <laughs> It's really a terrific world. Everyone's fine and everyone's in love with each other. Where's the problem? Because it's not true. Any, any questions except for Phyllis? <laughs> Anything we can talk over? Sure. You have a lot of judging. Yes. Yes. I got the message. You, you were quite articulate just now. We're not saying that. Yeah. In other words, do you, but do you think that's what we're suggesting? No, no, no. Yeah. I'm just suggesting that it is, it's 
Okay. Sure. Does it really do it? Um, uh, one thing, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. No, you know, say, say what you want. Um, one of the things that's been rather interesting for me in the subway, meaning there are a lot of practice in the subway. <laughs> I meditate in the subway, too. Um, I, I, I've been around the edge of everybody, just looking at the whole thing. And I say, I think of yoga. And I say, this picture is to myself. May your heart be happy. Right. Just like that, it's changing. Yes. Temporarily. Exactly. <laughs> That's the point. It's like you put a rock on top of grass. Oh, no problem. Remove the rock, the grass pops up again. But I just want to say one other thing. Sure. Say as many one other things as you wish. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Discrimination. I mean, trained as a visual person. You know, my life from birth was visual. Mm -hmm. This is beautiful. This is not beautiful, which I'm trying to get away from. Um, the, the, I mean, this is an old history. You know, uh, I mean, the Japanese concept of beauty. It's the people. Yeah. And the yin yang. Basic beauty. Okay. Right. Yes. Do you want to know how, how to? Yeah, no, it's just uh, what I can, I, I think I understand what you're getting at. Pardon? Well, in the process of answering the question, maybe, I, maybe it'll become clear. Judging. And we're judging in a sense of condemning. Okay, a lot of it. What to do? Every, I think everyone understands that. Okay, and a lot of it is internal. Okay, so from the point of view of this approach, how, how might that help all of us here? First off, there's a difference between judging and being judicious. So we're not being asked to check our ability, our intelligence. For example, oh, I just did a Vipassana retreat, and they say, the judging mind, it's a real problem. It comes up over and over again. You shouldn't have a judging mind. So you go to buy tomatoes. I use this example all the time. Those of you who have heard it, you can go to sleep for a few seconds. Uh, and you go in, and one, worm, one has a worm popping out, and the other is a healthy, organic, nice tomato smiling. Okay. And, and you say, well, which one do you want? And I say, well, I'm a Vipassana student. It doesn't matter. I don't judge. That's a misunderstanding of it. Uh, judicious is we're not being asked to check our discernment. The judging is the condemnation, the, the harshness. And it comes from us um, condemning things. Um, but judicious can see the difference 
And it doesn't mean you don't avoid anything. Um, it's just uh, the excessive, and especially in the mind. Okay, so what do we do when this happens? First of all, let's start with beauty, since that's very important to you. It is to me as well. Uh, sometimes if you read some of the texts, it sounds like beauty is the enemy. You know, it's sort of like we get attached and so forth. Beauty uh, is part of life. Beauty is an important part of life. Beauty isn't suffering. unless It's the misuse of beauty when we get attached to beauty. A beauty in and of itself makes life worth living. So, and this is what I was trying to get at when I, uh, a couple of evenings ago, when Lehman Pong and his family, they sank all their possessions. They were approximating a monastic model, which is a convention used in, uh, it's a kind of ascetic approach to help you let go of self-importance, and it can work for some people. But that's not, but th th what they were doing is measuring lay uh, spiritual development by a monastic standard, and I'm suggesting that that is dangerous for us. So here's the problem. Uh, you can keep your high heels, and you can keep your three-piece suits and your tuxedos and your makeup and your beautiful, if you have a nice car. That's not where the suffering is, and it isn't in money, and it isn't in sex, and it isn't in food. Is that we don't know how to use these energies. So if you can appreciate beauty while it's there, uh, then that enriches life. So if you find you're suffering, find out what that's about. That means you're wanting something to be other than the way it is, or you're imbalanced. You know, that, that is, you're using this to compensate for a lot of other areas that, that beg for attention. But now let's get back to practice. So let's say, uh, I also use the T in Boston, they call the subway the T. Okay, same thing, not as crowded. <laughs> And the people are, they used to be less, more polite, but now it's, everyone's uh, civility's out the door, <laughs> everywhere. Well, it used to be you, uh, in New York, well, especially in Boston, when I first got there, I was amazed. The door of the train would open, and first you let people out, and then you go in. Now it's first survival of the fittest. <laughs> okay, so something's changed. Anyway, so you sit there. I'm just being you for the moment. And you see this person has two socks that don't match, and that one is, uh, hasn't shaved in four days, and the third one smells from whiskey. You know, all the, okay, and you feel the mind, rah, rah, rah. Okay, uh, the practice would be, it's not just saying, judging, judging. Uh, that's a me that, those are mental notes designed to help you be aware of what's going on inside of you. For example, is it a wonderful way to live, to be judging people all the time? Find out. If it's so great, how do you feel when you're doing it? It's not that great. In fact, the Buddha used an extreme, a couple of extreme examples, extreme judging when you hate something. He said, um, if, you, if you hate someone, uh, it's like throwing fecal material at them. But you, you, maybe you, uh, maybe it makes you, you think you feel good because you've hit them with it, but you also, it affects you. You know, so take a look at the price you're paying for that. that. That's part of it. But the key thing is the quality of the seeing. See, it's the, if the judging is strong, let's say you've, we've all, uh, one, has had a lifetime of doing it, and it can be very deeply rooted. What, what is, muck, not, it's not just a film. It's much deep. What was yours? Glue. Glue. Okay. So then the quality of the seeing has to really be able to, to really see it. And uh, little by little, what happens is, 
you can't, if you get into a war with it, look, you can use meta as you did, and that's useful. Sometimes that can weaken it if you're so top heavy with it, and someone says, well, just be aware of it. Oh, now, just being aware of it, people misunderstand that. People will, now there's a new term, because Dharma language has fashion too. It's sort of, oh, I noticed it. Okay, uh, let's see. I just noticed what time it is. That's not gonna transform anything. Oh, okay, yeah, oh, yeah, no, I'm judging. Okay, what else is, I noticed it. Um, some, things, some things are like that. It's a sustained quality of attention for as long as it's there, you're there, and it's a gentle, there's affection in it. Uh, uh, Phyllis, you know, uh, it, <laughs> how am I doing? Getting better? Getting warmer? Yeah, okay. Uh, it starts, not that you cultivate the affection. At a certain point, you realize that awareness is you taking care of you. And it's just a good feeling to be living that way, where you're uh, alive and doing something that's beneficial for yourself, and you know it. Okay, so the, the sustained, you open up to, this is what we mean by intimacy. You, the judging mind, you experience it in the body. You feel how the breath suddenly changes. You can feel the quality of mind. and. It's not that you try to get rid of it. It's that, so some of it is you feel the price you're paying, but also as the awareness, the awareness can become like a flame. Here's the judging mind, powerful. A lifetime of practice, strong muscles, okay. Awareness can become very, very strong and unwavering and stronger than anything that comes in front of it and just burns it right up. It's not a problem, it's just, oh, here, the mind is doing this. That's all it's doing. So it's not to check our being judicious is to be intelligent, to be able to tell that tomato is right. I don't eat tomatoes with worms. And that's a good use of, of that word. Uh, when we're using it to, you're no good, that's no good. What, first of all, what is it accomplishing? Nothing. It's, it's, it is accomplishing something. It's exhausting us, and it, uh, et cetera. So uh, if you keep practicing as the awareness becomes more steady, and we're able to, I'm going to use a very positive term, enter into communion with judging. There's no separate, you're just, it's part of you. It's you taking care of you. It's not, otherwise you see, there comes the judging mind. I'm going to aim awareness at it. Da, 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 da. <laughs> they said awareness gets, burns it right up. Okay, here it comes. It's not a video game. You know, okay. It's opening up to it and fully, it's part of human experience. I don't know anyone who doesn't do judging sometimes, etc. Anyone else, please? Please, sure. That quality of awareness yes. that uh, looks at the judging and dissolves it, here, uh, it's easier to sustain that level of awareness and, and see that process unfold. Yes. Outside of here, in uh, fits and starts, mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So? So now what? So what? That's true. I, I agree with you. So now what? You book your next retreat, I guess. Get. Okay. Let's take, let's take something that's about to happen for, all, for many of us, anyway. Let's say you develop this wonderful samadhi, 
in, out, in, out. You feel at peace, you love the human race, etc. And you get in your car and you're driving to Boston, New York, Connecticut, wherever you're going next. And as the mileage ticks off, your hard-earned samadhi starts to fall away. And then, see, wisdom isn't getting a particular state. If you're able to learn from that, for example, when you see that the first time, and you, let's say Monday, and you go back to work, or that interview you're awaiting, and you see that suddenly that wonderful state of awareness that you had at IMS, you don't, it isn't quite uh, as, as steady as it was here. And, and then there's what? A disappointment. Or there's some, a little bit of suffering, maybe more than a little bit. Maybe it's a doubt. Well, why do I bother if I go there and I get this hard-earned samadhi, and then as soon as I leave, it, I lost it. What's the point? It's just what I just want. Uh, but wisdom is learning. It's not, we're not try, it's not so much what we've been trying to emphasize is we're not trying to get a particular state that we value. We're trying to learn how to be with the state that's here. And so if the state is disappointment because my samadhi compared to, see, real observation has no comparing in it. Choiceless means you're not comparing. Okay, so real, so what you see is that you're suffering on Monday because somehow your hard-earned flame of attention uh, is now a little tiny, you know, it's not even a flame, you know, it's a little flicker, okay? And then you get disappointed or angry or whatever it is. If, you, if you're able to learn from that, then you're a little bit wiser. It's not to get the, the, because the quality of attention is in the service of developing wisdom. Now, as we do that more and more, uh, sure, come back here in places like this. But you can develop that quality of attention. In fact, I don't see how it will be developed in a way that is practical and useful in your life unless you pick yourself up, you're disappointed, you dust yourself off, and then you bring whatever quality of awareness you can manage to life in whatever form it is for you. And you're right, it is harder, of course. So uh, watch how you engage what happens to you. And uh, in this situation, certain things are easier to learn. That's why, we, that's why this situation was invented by humans in India thousands of years ago. It's, practical, it's helpful. If you make it stand for everything, then everything short of this is a failure. Whereas what we've been trying to say is that wisdom is something that can be learned anywhere. We're trying to equip the mind so it's more able to do that. But it's not just this. It's are you interested in learning? Are you interested in suffering less? So even that comes, comes, becomes a source of suffering because it, you don't want it to be there. And it's true. We do, we do lose a bit of what we learned here. Of course, the conditions are different. And you can learn certain things home that you can't learn here or harder to learn here. No good? I see a butt in your face. It's just the end. The end is that my question is not necessarily about the inevitable disappointment that comes. I'm, I'm talking like six months out. Oh. When I'm not thinking or anything. Oh, Go ahead. Go, yeah, I, that's what I'm being is realistic. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. He, he, Realistically, six months from now, when this Dharma talk is long forgotten, yeah. Right. And they're not going to sit there in the middle of those demands and, and, and say, oh, I feel disappointed, I feel judgment towards this person. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get lost in the... Okay, so you've, you've already written a self-defeating scenario. You're welcome to attach to it. <laughs> you'll get, whatever you make, that's what you'll get. Sure, you're right. I agree with you. 
Don't make that scenario. Just take it moment by moment. Forget about all your ideas about what's going to come and live your life and take it as it unfolds. Get my drift or is it too deep? <laughs> he, he can handle this, so I'm not being mean. He's on to me. Okay. But you see what I'm getting at? It's a radically different attitude and it's hard to learn. That's why we, we're pumping so much energy into it. It's hard for us too. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, please. Yes. Teaching what? Teaching meditation or, or mm -hmm. Um There were periods in the last 20 years that I did some of that where I got a lot of visibility and then there was all this kind of projection onto me that I like knew a lot and I mean I knew some things but I knew that I had a lot, you know, a lot of work to do and I still do. And I decided to go back to school and get a degree in social work. Anyway, the point is, is that I left that work thinking I would sort of do it with, with the new training and so forth. But I found that I was just, I really didn't trust all that. I was afraid I would stay in one place. And, and although at first all that kind of, you know, mirroring that I was so wonderful was great, but it began to feel very isolating. I began to feel like a fraud. Uh, and teaching Dharma or teaching so? Teaching Dharma, you know, yeah. teaching Dharma. Um, I found that when I actually went into social work, it was much easier. I mean, I know this isn't about doing it easy, but what, what felt more natural was to just to in integrate that into the work. Although sometimes that urge to teach again is there, but I'm afraid of that, that thing again where you, you become separate from the, from the people that you're sharing with. When you feel like you're in the same boat with them, and I really get that from you that you say, I, I do the same thing. Um, so anyway, my, my question is about to teach or not to uh, in terms of... I can't tell you that. I can't tell you that. But, you know, let, let me, I can give you some general and then you make up your own mind. Look, people have told me I'm ready to teach. That's no guarantee of anything. They're people I've respected, my teachers and so forth. And I've seen other people who've been told by famous and masters and so forth, and make some incredible boo-boos, hurt people, okay? So I know I'm just a fallible human being, okay? Uh, and I don't wanna, I'm not gonna compare myself to any of you. Maybe some of you are wiser than I am. Fine, I'm glad you are. I'm just, here I am, and I can only answer your question in the following way. This is, because I don't know you well enough, okay? In terms of Dharma, be, I would, just the fact you asked the question, it's a good reason maybe not to do it. It's not, no Dharma teaching can be perfect because we're just human beings, but you have to be, this is one guideline. Thich Nhat Hanh gave me this guideline, and I found it's, it's helpful. You have to be on the other side of your suffering. That doesn't mean you never suffer, but it isn't, so it isn't that dominant in your life, okay? If there's still a lot of suffering in your life, and you're listening to other people's suffering, and you're gonna help them, good luck. You know, and it will pull you down. The other thing is with teaching, uh, if you should decide to do it, I, I'm not telling you what to do, okay? What I have found, it, I was a professor before, I saw it happen there, and I have it, here it's even more dangerous in dhar Dharma teaching, because you're not just teaching an academic subject about something, and then, and with young, young people, you know, undergraduates, of course they do all kinds of things. But here it's much more dangerous because we're talking about spiritual life, you know, 
the what could be more precious. Uh, what I found with myself is at first people overestimate me and they project all, you know, they make fantastic. And then, of course, as time unfolds, they start seeing a pimple there, you know, a wart here, you know. And before they, then I go down to the basement. He's a jerk. Why did I? And if, and if I'm lucky, at some point they find their way back, you know, like, he's okay. He's, he's a person. He's been at it longer than we have. He's had some experiences. He knows some things that might be helpful. I'm going to take advantage of that. And it's about me anyway. It's not about him. In this approach, it's not a guru-oriented approach. The Buddha is in you. The Buddha is in you. So I don't know whether you should do it or not. There's a hint, because you have the doubt. Um, let's say I probably come across as confident, don't I? Talk about Mr. Know-it-all. Yeah, okay. Uh, but I'd be happy to answer any question that you have. Uh, the point is, why waste time about me? Because you're here for you. There's one monastery I went to where there was a sign, and it said, hey, you there, what are you gawking at? Don't you realize this is about you? <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, this, this, we're finishing up, I know, I understand. I haven't, I'm, I'm in touch with the conventional world, too. <laughs> I'm a totally integrated person. All right. Um, we're, let's say all of us, we're on the path, and it would be a good idea to learn the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And it sounds like there's some path, and then I'm a student of the Lord, you know, the Buddha, I'm, we're children of the Buddha. Those are all words. They might be inspiring or uplifting. But... The Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, where is this path? You are the path. You're sitting on it right now. You're sitting on your path. Because <laughs> the path is not out there. The path is here. The suffering's here. The liberation is here. And it's not about worshiping either a statue, you know, like blah, 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 blah. It's not worshiping a statue. We could melt that down, maybe make a few bucks from it. <laughs> okay. But sometimes that can help you feel good and feel inspired. And if it does that job, fine. I'm, what am I going to make fun of you? Why should I? Because if it does that, if you think it's there, then you're in trouble because you're not, you haven't gotten what it is yet. The Buddha is long dead. But the quality that the Buddha is talking about, it's almost 3,000 years that the poor gentleman's been gone. And we have all these images of him. He doesn't look that way. A student will probably look like he's from California. You know, when sculptors here, they'll have blonde hair and blue eyes, maybe with a surfboard. I don't know. <laughs> but he's long gone, and he solved his problems, hopefully. And, you know, but it's not going to help us. I'm going to close with this so you get it. When I was in Korea with two other Americans, they were both monks. I was a layperson. And the first month we spent touring some of the really good Zen monasteries in Korea until we went to the one that we were going to be at for the year and doing uh, retreats. And so our teacher, this Korean gentleman, Sung San Sanim, he said, tomorrow we're going to the monastery which has the most beautiful Buddha in all of Korea. It's absolutely extraordinary. I can say this because it's well known. Stephen Mitchell, some of you have read his books. Um, <clears throat> uh, he's very smart. Uh, he knows a lot about beauty, he's been trained in art history, and he got so excited uh, because we all did the most beautiful Buddha in all of Korea. 
Okay, but he was almost, he couldn't wait to get there because he'd read everything about Asian art and the, Bo the Buddhist art and every culture and this and that, and he was beside himself. So we made our way up and it was pouring rain we, and we were full of mud and finally it was way up in a mountain. We got to this monastery. We got up there soaking wet and we got into the zendo, the meditation wall would be this equivalent to this. And we, you know, we, after we sit down and there's nothing like there's nothing there except a sign in Korean. And so we asked, well, what does that say? We didn't see the most beautiful. It said, if you're looking for the Buddha here, you better go back down the mountain and practice more. <laughs> okay. Thank you for putting up with us and with this heat. And we're all still here. And have a good summer or a rotten one, whatever it is. <laughs> But don't leave the practice here. Please, take it with you. It's portable, because it's you. Okay, can we have a few moments of silence? And I know that some of you don't like when I say, may we continue to look into ourselves, may we see things exactly as they are. You don't like that. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Thank you all very much. Have a safe trip home. We should thank Jim for Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.